From the newsroom of Rich Detroit and produced by WDET, Detroit's public radio station, this is What Had Happened Was... A look at how America's blackest city blew 70 years of black representation in Congress. What does black representation actually mean in 2022? Like, what does it mean in a city like Detroit, the nation's blackest big city, in terms of percentage? And does the loss of black representation in Congress foreshadow a more devastating loss of power and of voice and self-determination? And honestly, how in the world did this all come to pass? We elected a white mayor and we've re-elected him twice over since then. So, I mean, it's a little sort of odd that, that we would be as up in arms about it as we are because clearly we've gotten past, or seemingly many of us have gotten past, this sense of like, ah, how did that happen? Portia Roberson is the CEO of Focus Hope a service and civil rights nonprofit that was launched after the 1967 uprising shook the city to its core. Roberson worked in the Obama administration's Justice Department, and she was legal counsel to Detroit's mayors Dave Bing and Mike Duggan. Her father, the late Judge Dalton Roberson, was part of the city's first wave of black judges and politicians. In part, Portia tells Bridge Detroit founder Stephen Henderson that it was history that pushed her to run for the 13th congressional seat and to stay in the race. I would say I had the advantage of growing up in a household where um, my dad and my mom were some of the first wave of people to get to that middle class sort of background, middle class status where we could do things that had not been their norm at all. But also they were there to also remind me what had been, right? So I grew up sort of with this knowledge of like, this is fantastic. I get to see all these people. I get to go down to, you know, Frank Murphy Hall of Justice and my dad is sitting on the bench and we would go as class, you know, on our class field trips, right? <laughs> and it would be incredible because I would see all these judges, right? And I would see all these people that look like me doing that. But I also would come home and we would get the stories of like, this isn't how most of their generation grew up. This was not expected. This was not what was, you know, supposed to happen for them. And so um, I think that kept me grounded in a way that's a bit different now because either we've almost become so accustomed to it or so, you know, oh yeah, this is just the way it's supposed to be. Or for some, it's never going to be that way. So they don't, you know, it's just, it doesn't have the same effect. Yeah. So you grow up, you become a lawyer. Talk about the the turn toward politics and what makes you make that turn? I always liked politics. I was always interested in it. It was always, I used to joke and say that, you know, election day was like Christmas in my house. My brother was born that year on election day, which will be this year on election day, <laughs> November the 8th. So it always felt a little like a holiday for us. We were very interested in it. You know, we used to wear the hats with the, the bumper sticker around them. And, you know, we, we had all the stuff. We knew about how to run a campaign or run, you know, somebody running in a campaign when my dad had to run. So it was always something that I was interested in. It was always something that, I was aware of. And then as I started on my career, I think there was sort of a sense 
initially the sense was that when is Portia going to run for judge? That was always the sense immediately, right? As soon as I graduated from law school, I started practicing law. People would go, oh, she's waiting the requisite five years after practicing, I mean, or after passing the bar, and then she's going to become a judge. She's either going to get appointed by a governor or she's going to run. And people were shocked when that wasn't my next step. Mm. And it wasn't that I was never interested. I just don't think I was ever interested enough, right? I think I was like, I always used to joke and say I thought it was because I had seen how the sausage was made. And I was like, eh, it's nice, but maybe later on, you know? And interestingly enough, our current mayor is someone who told me at one point. Mike Duggan. Yeah. You might go there when you're ready to retire. Like when you when you get on the, you might get on the bench when you're ready to retire. But right now, you might have some other things to do. Um, and it kind of stuck with me. And I was like, eh, not yet. Maybe later. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> but, but you joined the Obama administration in, in Washington. And that's, that's kind of your first real taste of the political world. Now, you're not in a political role. You're right. in the Justice Department. But, but talk about what that does to, I guess, uh, change the way you think about uh, the trajectory of, of your career. I sort of did the sort of campaign work before I got to um, the Justice Department and was an appointee in the Justice Department. And so I spent four, four and a half years there, um, which gave me huge insight into the politics of particularly of Washington, D.C. And again, at the Justice Department, we weren't really doing the politics of things. And, but yeah, it certainly upped sort of my interest in politics. Yeah. And you come back and work for the administrations of both Dave Bing and Mike Duggan, um, and then you leave to go run Focus Hope, this this wonderful <laughs> nonprofit civil rights and and social service agency that we've had for fifty years in the city, and then you decide to run for Congress. So what what makes you decide that's that's the thing you're finally going to take a shot? Brenda Lawrence called me up and said, "Hey, the sitting the sitting congresswoman said, hey, Portia, I've been trying to reach out to you. I'm not running again." I think you'd be an excellent person to take my place in Congress. And I was uh, blown away, you know, um, despite what people think, Brenda and I did not have a long-standing relationship. Certainly, I had participated in things where she had asked me to participate in town halls she had hosted here in Michigan. We're sorority sisters. So I knew her mm -hmm. um, and had great respect for her. But, I, you know, it wasn't sort of like, hey, this is inside baseball. She, she said, you know, I think you'd be great. It seemed like the right thing. It felt like the right thing to try. Um, and it still feels like that, despite the fact that I wasn't, you know, I'm not going to be the next congresswoman from the 13th district. It still felt like the right thing to do. Yeah. So, so let's talk about race and the role that it played in your decision. It seems to me that, you know, it's, you, know you were talking earlier about how the, the, the change in political power, the shift from white to black in the city— created a place where people in our generation didn't necessarily think about how hard it was f uh, for, for black people to be in control mm -hmm. uh, in, of things, that, that that's a rarity. Um, and it's a black city. This is a seat that's been held in one form or another by at least one uh, African-American, you know, in, in Congress for almost 70 years. The, the presumption is that, oh, well, uh, of course this will go to another African-American. Or was it that you were worried that it wouldn't and that's why you got in? 
for me, the first thing was, can I do the job? It wasn't, you know, hey, people elect me because I'm a black woman. Mm -hmm. Because I think the first thing is to consider that you think you're the best person for the job, right? Um, Which I did. The second thing is, I think I had more concern that it wouldn't be held by an African-American. So you did that? Yeah, because it was a very, it is a very diverse new district. You talk about adding in Gross Point. You talk about adding in Hamtramck. You talk about all the downriver cities that were added in. I don't think it was sort of an assumption that it was going to be somebody black. Mm. And to be clear, um, Sri Thanadar had said early on that he was going to run. He said in like December that he was going to run. I didn't announce that I was running until March. Right. So I knew there was going to be a great chance that he was going to win because, you know, it was a diverse district and he was going to spend a ton of money. So that means we have no no African-American representation in Congress from the blackest city in North America. Four or five years ago, I was having a conversation with Ros Baraka, the mayor of uh, Newark, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to know how the blackest city in America elected a white mayor. So, I mean, <laughs> actually. Another great question. I mean, actually, I thought we had moved past this shock and awe at the possibility that Detroit or the 13th district wouldn't have black representation because we elected a white mayor and we've reelected him twice over since Mm -hmm, then. So, mm -hmm. I mean, it's a little sort of odd that that we would be as up in arms about it as we are, because clearly we've gotten past this sense of like, (gasps) how did that happen? I guess, or, or another way to think about it is we haven't organized ourselves as African-American Detroiters enough around the idea of preserving that black representation uh, in a way that that makes it possible to, 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 to hold on to. I mean, yeah, but I guess, you know, so there's, of course, everybody's talking about there were just too many black people in the race. And that's the reason why Shri Thanadar is going to be our next congressperson. Um, and certainly I don't take away from the fact that, you know, having nine, I think, candidates. I think it was nine. Black, yeah. Nine black candidates in the race uh, didn't help any of us, right? There's no question about that. And I think there's there's a lot to unpack around why nine people wanted to run and why nine people didn't realize that, you know, um, we were going to split the vote enough so that Shri could win. But I also think we've got to ask ourselves, what is appealing to the voting masses. And I say that because, you know, one of the things that Shri talked about often on the campaign trail was the fact that he grew up in abject poverty, Mm -hmm. right? And in talking to people during the campaign and talking to people after my campaign, that resonates with a lot of folks in a way that I don't know that Black people and this sort of leadership are taking into consideration. This concept that Whatever my narrative might have been, whatever my story is, in some way is not resonating or feeling as similar hmm. to Black folks in this city in a way that Shree's story is resonating with them. And I think we've got to understand that if we're going to figure out ways in which we, if, 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 our, if, our, own, if our only objective is to get Black leadership back into these seats, then the question is whose story is really resonating with black voters in a way that they feel that they can connect with that person they're electing. Because um, 
I don't know that for this generation, for a variety of reasons, that just being black is going to be enough. Mm. So, so, as you said, Shree announces in like December that mm-hmm. he's going to do. I mean, he's he's I think first out of the gate saying I, I want this. Um, and you announce in 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 March. Why didn't you announce earlier? And and do you think it would have mattered uh, if you had been the first person to say you wanted it, or right behind Shree? Would would that have given you a better ad- ad- advantage? I mean, part of me thinks that had I had a little bit more time, um, yeah, I think it might have made a little bit more difference. But now I think also, you know, you're talking to somebody who was running for their first elected office. So whether I had announced earlier or not, it was also about learning how to campaign, which is something that my campaign manager eventually told me, you don't know how to do this until you've done it. (laughs) And so, you know, that's the crux about deciding whether you'll ever do it again. Now, you know so much that you think, wow, the next time I could probably be successful. But on the same token, now that you've done it, you're like, oh, my gosh, never again. (laughs) So it goes both ways. I mean, yeah, I think that there is some consideration for if I'd had a little bit more time, maybe that would have happened. But I still think, you know, I still think there are other issues there. There are other because I wasn't going to stop anybody. I mean, right. The other people who had announced were going to still announce. I think that's going to happen again. People keep talking about, hey, in two years, if it's a one on one race, it'll go differently. Well, we did that and it didn't go differently. And I think, again, you're talking about Congresswoman Tlaib. Her story resonates with people. She is Rashida very Tlaib, much Rashida Tlaib. The other Tlaib. congressperson right, who represents right. Detroit. And she is very much a Detroit woman. I shouldn't say Detroit girl, but I say that because it's, a, <laughs> right. it's just a, a phrase I use. But, <laughs> you know, she grew up here. She has a story. She's been an activist. She's been extremely um, beneficial to this to the city that she's represented. But, you know, it was a, it's the same scenario, Right. Lots of black folks in the race. She won. The next two two years later, the field is cleared. One-on-one race between she and former city council president Brenda Jones. She wins again, right? Um, and I think, again, it goes back to what's resonating with voters. And, and we also have to take into consideration that Detroiters just aren't voting in the numbers they have to vote in order to win any seat. I mean, right. I think, quite honestly— Somebody downriver is looking right now. Some, some white elected official downriver is looking right now and thinking— why wouldn't I try? I can in two make years. these numbers work, right? Yeah. So, so I want to go back to something you said okay. really early in the conversation about um, your dad becoming a judge. And Coleman Young um, says to other people who think I, I, I ought to get that seat instead of Dalton Roberson, and he says, "No, no, no, no. This is the person we're going to put into this seat, and here's why." And two things: one, if you challenge him. Uh, you'll never get anything else, right? <laughs> we all know those stories <laughs> from the young administration. But but the second thing is, he says, look, uh, uh, if you step down, um, step away from this, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll help you out with something in the future, right? I, I'm not just pushing you out. back or out. I'm saying this is about all of us and, and we got to kind of take turns. Warren Evans kind of tries to, to do that, Warren Evans, who's the county exec now here in Wayne County, tries to do that in this race. He comes out and he says, look, uh, Adam Ollier, who is a state senator, lives in, in, um, in the middle of the city and, and is also running. He says, let's, let's all get behind him. And, and I'm simplifying, right? Yeah. I mean, 
he goes through something of a process to, to, to arrive at that. What's the difference? Why, why doesn't that work this time? Why didn't you think, hey, Warren's right. It's not about me. It's about, it's about us and the city. Maybe my time is, is, is later. But, but it's not just you, right? Nobody gets out of the race because of that. Well, a couple things. I think first and foremost, when you talk about Mayor Young, he sort of had a carrot and stick approach, right? It wasn't, hey, just step back. It was, hey, step back, but I'm going to make sure you're okay later on. Or I'm going to make sure we get behind you for the next thing. And I've got my eye on this for you next, right? So He was good at making it about us, us, all of us. Right. It wasn't like, oh, we just chose this person. We just don't like you enough to choose you. And hey, so just go away and go back to your corner and that's it. That's one thing. I think the other thing, and, and, and this is no slam on any of our current elected officials, but the city had such reverence for Coleman Young, right? We trusted him immensely. We knew that the choices he made and the people he chose, we felt very solidly like he was choosing someone who he knew would have our collective best interest at heart. We haven't seen that since Mayor Young, right? We have not felt that since Mayor Young. That everything that Mayor Young was doing, every choice he was making, every person he was choosing was because he fully believed that they would work in the best way possible for the collective group of Detroiters, for black Detroiters, right? And that kind of trust is built from a variety of things. But without that kind of trust, I don't know that even if we had all gotten out, that Detroiters would have picked the person that they had picked because you have to have an immense amount of trust from the collective voters mm. to vote for that person. That's one. Um, the second thing, just in terms of timing. So I made the requisite calls to our mayor, um, to our county exec, to tell them I was really considering running. They both, Mayor Duggan said, okay, keep me posted. He wasn't going to be a part as much of the Warren Evans group, but, you know, certainly he wanted to know what was going on throughout. Um, the county exec said, I'm going to pull the, together this group. We're going to do this, you know, vote. We're going to try and figure out who should be the person. I was very clear, like, look, I, I have a job and I don't necessarily have to run. But once they finally took the vote, we were almost at Easter, maybe. Like by then, all of us had started doing things that it was sort of too late to start saying, okay, I'll stop, mm. you know? So it became a timing issue as much as for me, I never received a call from anyone in that group to tell me like, hey, let's have a discussion about stepping back, right? I was told via a number of sources that I wasn't their pick, but nobody ever called me back and said, hey, Portia, would you consider not running because we're all trying, we're trying to get so-and-so out of the race, even though in my, they didn't have to offer me anything necessarily, but I didn't get a conversation to say, this is what we're trying to do, or this is why we've picked, or we know it's late in the game. And so we know you may have done some things that are going to require you to, you know, sort of back those up. Let's talk about that. That call never came. So I think for, I can only speak for myself, but for me, I never got a call asking me to say, you know, sorry, thanks. I'll wait till next time. Right. Did you think about getting out at any point as a way of clarifying the choice in the race? 
just on your own? I, 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 by the time the, that decision had been made, I don't think I did. I really don't. I think at that point I was sort of, and there were some, some, some personal reasons for that. I think, I think I felt that people thought I had sort of dipped my toe in races before and then sort of backed away from them. And so for me personally, it also felt like I can't have gone this far only to pull back unless there's going to be, you know, some real honest, open discussions with folks about why I did this and that people are going to back up the fact that I've done this, right? Like, I can't just say to people who have stepped out right with me and said, hey, I'm supporting Portia. Hey, guys, I'm not going to do it again. Because then the narrative for me really becomes how many times is Portia going to dip her toe in something and then back away from Mm -hmm. it? Um, so for me, no. At that point, I think I was, I said, okay, if we're going to do this, I'm going to be all in and I'm going to distance. And, you know, once certain decisions came down, I was like, ah, eh, you know, we didn't get that one, but we're going to shoot for the next one. And that's what we did, you yeah. know? Yeah. So, so here we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and unless something extraordinary happens on election day, we're going to have two non-black Congress people who represent the city of Detroit, the first time since 1955 that that's true, that we have no uh, black representation uh, in Washington. How much does just that fact, which, which again, I keep saying uh, it's hard to say it and not just chuckle. And it's not a, it's not a, a, a hilarious kind of thing or, or a funny kind of thing you're, you're laughing to stop from crying in yeah. some ways, right? Like, how did we do this? But but how much does it actually matter that that is true, that that happened? I do think it matters because as I spoke in the beginning, the idea of that kind of representation and people, you know, we I don't think we we lean in enough to how much Black representation still matters for so many of us. And I think the fact that we don't have that and the fact that there are younger people who won't see that is sad to me, right? Because I, again, you know, I'm 50 some odd years old. Leave the some odd <laughs> off, but... Um, <laughs> We're the same age. We're the know, same age. Know, We're both feeling it. Yours, but I don't need to tell mine. Um, but, you know... I still get choked up, as I mentioned, and I think that it's unfortunate that people won't see that. You know, we sort of, t- and but again, we took it for granted, right? We kind of took it for granted that it was always going to be there. And I think it's in part because we haven't heard the stories of how it was when it wasn't there, right? Um, and there's so many people who aren't here with us anymore to share those stories, who really talked about, I mean, I know how much, you learned from your uncle and from, you know, so many who were involved in the politics of the times and that administration, but even sitting outside that administration, they just could tell the stories of a time when that was not the norm. And it reminded all of us of how special it was, right? Even if we didn't sit in the middle of it during that time, we were too young to do that. And unfortunately, I don't think we do enough sharing of that to pe- to younger people now. And so we've lost it. And I don't know how we get it back. What do you think your dad would say about, about all this? I mean, as somebody who was in that first sort of class of, all right, this is our city now. 
right? Yeah. And and we're going to run it and run it for the benefit of of the people who live here. Would he would he be? I know he wouldn't be happy, but would he be shocked by this? Again, I don't think he would be shocked because we've had in his lifetime we had a white mayor in the, <laughs> the blackest city in America. I mean, you know, I think that was the. If any time people were shocked, it was then that I think that generation was more shocked. They did not expect that that would happen in their lifetimes, at least, right? I remember how shocked my dad was. And I remember how how really disappointed he was because there was sort of this narrative around, um, you know, obviously Mayor Bing sat in the seat for four years after Kwame stepped down. But I remember there was a lot of narrative around, like, we can't have that happen to us again. And our current mayor, Mike Duggan, will be the one that makes sure we are not in that situation again, which was so sad because, right, how many black elected mayors and and government officials have there been around this country who've never done anything like that, who haven't, you know, done anything to embarrass their respective cities. And we were ready ready to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But listen, we had done it to his mom in that congressional seat in the 13th district. Mm -hmm. She was a great congresswoman. She brought a lot of money back to this city, a lot of money. And we said, oh, no, you stood up for your son and you said, you know, that's y'all's boy. So we don't like you anymore. And we're getting you out. And here's Hanson Clark, who's going to replace you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's not like we haven't done all of this before, which is why I could be more worked up at the fact that we've done it again. But I'm just not because <laughs> it's just not as if it's now. brand new. This right? Is, this is what we're doing. <laughs> this, is, this is what we do here. Right. This is what we do here. And then we, you know, and then we complain like. How did this happen? Well, we've done it four times already, so shouldn't we have figured out how it happens now? So so you talked about how nobody is Coleman Young. And, of course, I mean, the, the, it's a maybe once in a lifetime, generation, century kind of <laughs> political figure. And, and the and, world has changed. So and, I don't the, know that he would be elected now, right? right? The world looks right. completely different. The city looks completely different than it did. So, but... You do have, you do have black electeds who who aspire to to lead beyond just the job that they have. And and look, uh, without assessing how Warren Evans went about doing what he did, his instinct was to try. Uh, we got to yeah. fix this, right? It's something that's not working. I I, I have an I, idea. Is it possible f- for him to show? more of that in a way that would make it more effective. One of the things that I think hurt him really was that there were a lot of people who were, who probably said that, you know, I don't ever hear from Warren about stuff like this, right? Like why, why is he coming up now telling me in an election what to do? This is not somebody who's building, you know, the, the, the infrastructure to continue black leadership beyond when he's in office. This is not somebody who's moving people along at, and so it came out of nowhere for a lot of folks. And I think that's that's difficult. It, it put race out of the question. In politics, you can't you can't do that. But if he were to take more of an interest now, could he or is there somebody else that you see who who, who could play more of that role and organize around this idea of us? I mean, Yeah, I think he could try it again. He could try and organize. I think it goes back to the sort of trust that people have to have that the person that is making the suggestion and who they're suggesting that they trust 
the county exec so much that they're going to listen to who he who he is supporting. I think, you know, one of the issues that came up time and time again is how many women were involved in the process, black women in particular. Um, You know, there was definitely um, on my end some consideration for how many black women. There were uh, three or four, you know, women that I knew of that were in the room that I wholeheartedly respect. But in a group of the size that it was, that wasn't nearly enough the conversations that was coming out of that the legacy committee and the pick was not only that there were not, um, you know, on the outside were that there weren't enough women in the room making the decision, but that there was sort of this narrative that women have so much and that, you know, it's the man's turn, which, you know, Men aren't actually hurting for political <laughs> leadership here in Detroit. Like it, black right. that men congressional not, streak is, a, right. is an anomaly. It's just, right. It's not like black men have, you know, had so little and black women have had taken over the city of Detroit, right? Um, but the other piece is going a little bit back to Mary Young, and this is where I think things sort of have changed dramatically. At least in the stories I've been told, and again, you know, I, I can only operate from what I've been told. When you're trying to build political leadership and execute political leadership and sort of a machine, you have to be willing to pick winners, despite the fact that they might not be your favorite person or the person you're closest to. You have to pick the people you're going to win that are going to win because that's how you build a machine. That's how you build power. We've gotten to a point where we want to pick people that we've known or that we like or that we feel good about, which is great, but it doesn't necessarily mean that person can win, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to build any political power from that. Mm -hmm. And I say that only to say that if you look at the history of the congressional seat and who's won in that congressional seat time and time again since John Conyers, if you look at why we have Kamala Harris as our vice president, why President Biden had to promise there was going to be a black woman on the Supreme Court with his first Supreme Court pick. It's because if you look around this country, you recognize that black women are the backbone of the Democratic Party. And if you don't speak to us, (laughs) you will not win. And so in my conversation with a number of people, I kept telling folks, the best chance you have to beat Shree is a black woman. You got to have a black woman. You're not going to head to head beat tree with a black man. I don't care who you bring. You're just not. The numbers don't add up for that to be the possibility. And people were like, no, we can just give you black men and they just they can win and we'll put a bunch of money behind them and and we'll make it happen. And it's not going to happen. And so I think, you know, can Warren Evans try again? Absolutely. Um, should he bring more women into that group to make sure that women feel like they were represented in that room in a way that that they will consider getting, you know, getting out if need be? Um, absolutely. But I also think we've all got to have a hard, um, we've all, all got to be willing to have hard conversations, not only with ourselves, but with the people who want to do this, they've got to be willing to have hard conversations. They've mm-hmm. got to be willing to say, yes, you're my friend. yes. You know, I really like you. Yes, I did this with, you know, your brother or your father or your sister or your mother. But at the end of the day, so-and-so can win this seat. So we got to pick them because we got to win. Talk about 
not just the face uh, of who represents us, but the substance of how we're represented. Is it great when a black girl looks at me and hopefully she still will look at me and say, I can do great things. I might not be their elected congresswoman, but I think, you know, I've got some things that hopefully young black girls look at and say she's she's done okay for herself. But and I think in some ways, I think a lot of people looked at Shree and said he his story is like my story. He's he's not black. He didn't grow up in Detroit. But maybe his sense of where he did grow up is is more like that. My sadness comes from the fact that he hasn't been part of the Detroit or even the Wayne County experience for, you know, and politically for his entire life. You know, I think there are some things that you just inherently feel as a Detroiter, um, as someone who grew up here that doesn't come from living in Canton or living (laughs) in Ann Arbor or living, you know, just recently in Detroit. To that extent, that saddens me as much as anything that, um, it's not only not going to be somebody black, but it's not going to be somebody who's had the experience of watching the city at its lowest and watching sort of some of the comeback and, you know, seeing it at a time when it was bustling and you could do everything you needed to do right in the city of Detroit. The What Had Happened Was podcast is produced by Bridge Detroit in conjunction with 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. The series was created by Stephen Henderson and hosted by Ashley Stevenson. Interviews were conducted by Katherine Kelly, Orlando Bailey, Malachi Barrett, and Stephen Henderson of Bridge Detroit. The executive producer and interview editor for the series is Stephen Henderson. Recorded by Connor Anderson. Audio engineering for the series and music created by Sam Bobian. <laughs>